Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of Sounds Like a You Problem. I am your host, Daisy, and if you don't know, what inspired this entire podcast in the first place was my struggle with alcoholism and my triumph with sobriety. And I have shared a video, a podcast episode, sorry, um, the first one being overall about addiction. And I come from a very like big sister, tough love, things I wish I would have been told sooner when I was younger kind of place with these episodes. But today I want to share with you the story of my alcoholism. And then I feel I can share with you my story of my sobriety, which is really what I want to do, but I don't think it's fair if I do that without first telling you about my addiction. So this is going to be more of like a story time, if you will. So I'm sure there's still motivational things you can take from this. I'm sure that you can resonate with it if you've ever struggled with any kind of addiction. I'm sure that if you have a loved one who struggles with addiction, especially alcoholism, that it might help you to understand them better. It's going to be a doozy. It's going to be a long one. I'm really outing myself here. Um, But honestly, the information and the story is already all there on TikTok. I've told everything. I've been through everything on TikTok and I want a more condensed place to have this story and I want to share this story because this is part of my testimony. It's part of the story that leads to where I am now, which is so beautiful and so just so beautiful. So I have to tell you the bad first before we can tell you the good and um with <laughs> I just think it'll be too long of a video if I do it both in one place. So here we are. My story with alcoholism. My struggles. Okay. I don't really know where to start other than I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety at 10 years old. My mother was an addict. If you've listened to other videos, she struggled very, very roughly with methamphetamine. We were somehow always in her care or another family members. I don't know how a higher organization wasn't involved. They were a few times, but nothing ever happened. No repercussions happened because of that. If you catch my drift, my biological father is um, uses everything he can get his hands on when it comes to drugs, alcohol, just not a very good person. And my dad, who raised me, is my brother and sister's father, and he passed away from a heroin overdose when I was, uh, I had just turned 20 six years ago this Thanksgiving, actually, so it hits a little harder around this time of the month, um, around this time of year. So I had a rough one. I, I had a rough one, and if you've listened to my episodes, you know that I personally put the weight of trying to give my brother and sister the childhood that they deserved that I didn't receive and to protect their innocence, you will know that I had that all come crashing down in a very realistic way for me at my dad's funeral. Now, prior to my dad's funeral, I was in a long-term, very serious relationship that I thought was going to be the end-all, be-all. And I knew he had struggled with an addiction himself, and this is prior to my addiction, Um, and he was sorting it out. I was, like, getting paperwork that he was doing, like, he was following, like, the legal, he had gotten legal trouble. So I had had, like, paperwork and proof and everything, that everything was good and right and dandy in the world. Come to find out his mom was forging all of the paperwork because he worked for his father and they were trying to keep everything a secret from his dad. I found the paperwork. I found the stuff on him. Long story short, I felt so confused and befuddled and just like I was destined to love 
addicts my whole life, that everyone that was in my life was just like an addict. And I think that's why maybe I took my brother and sister so, I took taking care of them so seriously and I put a lot more pressure on myself. Like no one put this on me, but I put it on me so heavily. Like, like this was my life goal and I failed. I failed and I had that realization at my father's funeral because I was a child. I was a child who had a very traumatic childhood and I had not healed and I did not have the resources to heal and I had no one acknowledging the pain that I was going through and how could I ever be expected to bear the weight of doing that and I don't know why I put that on myself but I did and be, you can't do that <laughs> um, and because I, I put that in that expectation on myself realizing I couldn't protect my brother and sister from the world crushed me and it made me realize that I had been trying so hard for so many years to do things that probably didn't matter. And I just pushed, my, pushed myself to a breaking point. I ended up ending, leaving that relationship and my brother and sister were younger than me. So they lived with some family members far away. My mom at the time is now in prison. My dad is now dead. My, you know, biological dad, he's not in the picture. He is not in the picture. There's some stuff later about him that's recently happened that I, I'll talk about later um, that's like affecting me in the now but I, I just can't speak about it right now. And I hate when people say that. I hate when people are like, there's something going on, but I'm not going to tell you. Um, but that's just why my tone and mood kind of changed when I brought him up. So let's talk about alcoholism. I ended up finding an alcohol that I liked. Prior to this, I hated alcohol. I hated the way it smelled, it tasted, the way it made you feel. I was like, absolutely not. I'm never going to do any of these things in my life. I have perfect examples of exactly who not to be. The thing is, my dad and mom never drank, ever, in front of me. Ever, ever, ever. And I, it's a socially acceptable drug. It is poison, but it's everywhere. And it is so glorified and glamorized. And I didn't really take any of that into account so I didn't really take into account that it could be detrimental and that, you know, genetically I'm predisposed to have addictive tendencies and, and more likely to be addicted to anything that I try. And at the time I was smoking and using marijuana, which is a whole thing within itself that I don't even know how I got into and I'm not speaking ill on that. I just, I put it down. I don't think it's necessary to partake in and, um, for myself, uh, Either way, I ended up putting that down just because I wanted to spend more money on alcohol. So I was lonely. I was isolated. I was dealing with all these things from my childhood and I had no one to turn to. I lost this relationship. I felt so dumb that he somehow, like, I don't know. And I've talked about this in my addiction episode, um, just about how it made me feel like I, one, was destined to love addicts, but two, that, like, it should be my sixth sense to pick up on if someone is abusing drugs and somehow he pulled one over on me. Made me feel just so, I don't even, ugh. the only word I can think of is befuddled. And that's the word I always use because I just, I still, when I think about it, I'm like, what the hell? How did that happen? Anyway, I was lonely and uh, me and my dog took everything that we had. When I found out that he was still using drugs, um, he became violent and I left him. And... I was going through that alone on top of everything that I had never healed from my childhood. And I had 
went through high school and was supposed to graduate early because I was working so many hours because I moved out at 14. Um, I ended up having to move back in with my mom at 15, but then I moved back out at 16. So I was on my own for a really long time and I was couch surfing and trying to find a place to stay. And um, I just ended up staying at someone who was associated with my mom house because he had a big large house he was an older guy with kids my age and he had a room and he allowed my dog to be there and I didn't want I, I would sleep in my car before I got rid of my dog so chief is still with us I've had him for seven years since he was six weeks old and he is my best friend and my greatest blessing I think in this life um so that's where I ended up. But it was so isolated. He worked a million hours um, and he was just providing me a place to stay, not like a sense of family or anything like that. Um, so I just did everything alone. Everything from eating to waking up to going to work to coming home. It was all me. And I don't think at the time that I had the realization that I needed to be comfortable being alone with myself. I just felt lost. I felt stuck. I remember looking, like, I just felt so hopeless. Like, looking back, I thought I had everything figured out. And um, really, truly, like, the main word to describe where I was in that moment of my life was directionless. And again, I always hated alcohol, the way it tasted, made me feel all of those things. And so if you're someone who identifies with that, please keep that. Please keep that feeling. Please continue to hate alcohol the way it tastes, the way it smells, the way it makes you feel. Um, because alcohol has this evil manipulative way to make you fall in love with it. And that seems like a theme in my life, a common theme. An evil manipulative way to somehow make me fall in love with it. I digress. We're not going to unpack that right now. I ended up trying an alcohol mixed with a soft drink that I loved. Like, it didn't taste like alcohol at all, and I was like, this is amazing. And no, I'm not going to share it, because I don't want you going out there and trying it and being like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I'm not influencing anyone in that way, so I'm not going to tell you what it was. Um, but it very quickly turned into, you know, me day drinking because I had all my bills paid and things were fine, and I just was directionless, didn't really know where to go. So, again, I'm, you know, 19, 20 years old, and people often ask me how I was getting alcohol underage. Well, I had a friend at the time who is no longer a friend for multiple different reasons, and this one should be included and is, that lent me her expired ID. Um, I lived in a very rural area, and no one checked my ID. But when they did, they didn't even notice that that wasn't my name or my weight or my eye color. I mean, we look somewhat similar, but like, I would never say that we look similar. But for like an ID picture purpose, I guess. I just was never asked or caught or I don't know. It just never, it was just never something that anyone stopped me from doing. So I had access to alcohol at any time that I wanted. Um, doing things that, you know, were not legal. And yeah, it spiraled. It, it, it became where, you know, I would come home and I'm, I, I would make sure to get whiskey before I went home so that I could drink it and fall asleep easier and not be as lonely and kind of chill out and take a bath and like have like have this ritual where I, I drank all the time and then sometimes I would like wake up and be like a little bit hungover and I'd be like you know what I don't have anything to do today I'll just go get more liquor and you know then that turned into building up a tolerance and then my dad died two months after like that happened okay and at his funeral I was so intoxicated and I don't think anyone else was. Um, 
but they may have been. Um, I just really signify the start of my addiction to alcohol from that breakup, but it, like, intensifying threefold, probably, um, the day of my dad's funeral. Um, and then I started drinking at work. I actually worked at Hooters, and it's a very hard place to work. It's not, you know, I went in it young, and I didn't have parents telling me or warning me of things that, like, are realities of that, and so I just brushed it all to the side and was like, no, this is where I'm going to make money because I need to make the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time so that I can still provide and be there for my brother and sister as much as possible, but also make money. And I was, and I was buying them two and three hundred dollar Christmases, and it was, you know, providing for them for holidays and stuff. And it was my pride and joy, and something that that I still look back on very fondly and worked very hard for. But it was a very toxic work environment, and I mean that in the way that like it, it was like worse than going to high school every day because you have all these girls who are competing, and I mean it's like it's like a very tame dancers club if you know, if you catch my drift and you sink or swim, you know, in that type of environment. And I actually found out my dad had passed while I was working, um, on a shift I was working the day after Thanksgiving. He passed away on Thanksgiving. We found out the next day. That doesn't really matter. So I remember like I would stop at Quick Trip and pour whiskey into like a frozen cappuccino and drink it at work. And then I would hide shot bottles in my apron and go to the bathroom and drink shots. And, you know, I was maintaining at this point. Like, I was just like, everything is just so much easier if I'm a little bit buzzed. Everything's so much easier to get through and so much funner if I'm a little bit more buzzed. And what's the issue? What's the problem? It's constantly making excuses because I was like, it doesn't matter. By the time my shift's over, um, I'll be sober enough to drive home because I'm only taking two shots for this six-hour shift. And by the time this, ha like, constant excuses to justify horrendous behavior and very shameful shameful choices that I made and I've talked about this before but um it just spiraled from there like I mean I drink every single day for then three years after that every single day morning to night like it got to the point where I would leave wine next to my bed to wake up to I was going to the gas station two to three times a day I was drinking eight to twelve shots of 99 proof vodka a day Plus, anytime we went out, I was getting mixed drinks, I was getting beers. Every time we were going on the weekends, we were going out. And then it became the, towards the end, like the last six months, two to three days a month, I would get these days that I would call purge days because I was like, oh, I just, I'm just purging all the alcohol, you know, at this point that I put in my system. But I was genuinely withdrawing. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but I was like violently not hungover. I was probably experiencing alcohol poisoning and withdrawal at the same time or um, in the same kind of sense. Like I was just in the bathroom, just getting so sick and having stomach aches nonstop. It was, it was really bad. I was really, really sick, but I always showed up to work. I always paid my bills. I always kept mouthwash in my car. I always showed up with my hair and makeup done. I always showed up with a smile on my face. Like I always still showed up in a way that I don't think a lot of people realized how hard I was struggling and exactly what was happening behind the scenes, at least not to the degree that it was. Um, and no one ever said anything to me. I had a friend one time say like, hey, don't you think like like, it's probably too early to be drinking or, like, we don't need to, to drink today, like, and I just blew her off because she was a smoker and I was just like, don't try to stop what I'm doing when you are relying on a substance as well to get you through each day. 
And other than that, no one really ever said anything. Like, they would say, like, be careful. Like, insinuating maybe that they knew I had a problem, but no one was, like, directly confronting me. And so I got away with it for a really long time because I ignored my inner voice and my inner child. And I would just drink more to not have to deal with the shame or guilt. So I never felt shameful or guilty because I would just drink until I didn't feel that way. And like I said, I was really, really violently ill. Um, I made really weird decisions. I say weird, but I just mean like I was very, I was a lot less modest than I honestly prefer to be. And that what makes me like, that makes me comfortable. I didn't know where my morals or values really laid because I never thought about it. And you know, your early twenties is like a detrimental time in your life to really figure those things out. And I wasn't even taking a, a beat to concern myself with any of that. So there was a time a couple months before I got sober where I was like, you know, maybe I'll try to cut back at least on the amount I'm consuming because every single penny I have is going to alcohol and I am dead broke. Like I am struggling to pay my rent. I'm struggling to do things that like I should be able to do. And at that point I was like hardly ever drunk. I was just maintaining um, because you build up a tolerance and my emotional dependency on alcohol came very quickly. Like, very, like I'm talking prior to my dad's death. I was already using that as a coping skill, and that's why I showed up at his funeral, using that to cope. And then the physical dependency came somewhere along the way. You don't recognize when that happens until you stop or until you slow down or until you attempt either of those things. So, yeah, I just wasn't really aware of when the physical... I'm still not really aware of when the, the physical dependency uh, came into play, but there was jobs that I quit because I felt like I couldn't work them because I actually have always suffered from a panic disorder, but I wasn't diagnosed with said panic disorder until last October. So I was dealing with like um, situations where I would go into fight or flight mode so intensely, even though nothing had inherently triggered me and I would lose consciousness and I was having what is known as a pseudo seizure. Not everyone with a panic disorder has pseudo seizures, but I do and I did. And we went to the doctor's and we tried to figure it out, and they were like, you're not having seizures. But, like, people who were witnessing me were telling me I was having seizures. Ultimately, we finally found out that it is a pseudo-seizure. Um, but I was losing consciousness. Anyway, I would start to feel that way, and I would... I think that I was going through withdrawal, but I would mask that or play downplay that with, like, oh, no, I'm going to black out. Like, I'm going to have a panic attack because... It was relatively similar, and I was already experiencing those issues my whole life. Like, the earliest time I, that it happened to me was in kindergarten. Um, and there was days where I would do it, like, three times a day in a row. Like, my body just couldn't handle the stress and would shut down. And there was a time from the time I was, like, 12 or, I guess, 11 to, like, 14. It was really, really, really bad. Um the last time I ever lost consciousness was in 2016. I have done my very best to um, fix all of that. And I don't know if the alcohol helped numb those sensations because I think I started getting addicted to alcohol in like in like 2016, 2017 ish. Um, but I got sober in 2021. I did not mean to move the camera. Sorry.
where were we? So there was a point in time towards like the last six months of my addiction where I stopped um, being so, excuse me. Okay. There was a point in time in my addiction where I actually stopped um, denying everything. I stopped being in denial and I was like, I definitely need to cut back. And I even shared that with my boyfriend, Jordan, at the time, who is still my boyfriend and partner, as you guys know. Um, We got together in November and I got sober in April. So what happened was I had drank a lot that day. He was out of town on a work trip and I was with a very, very, very toxic codependent friend that I cut off when I got sober. And we were drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. We decided we were going to go get piercings and the wait list was too long. And just across the street was my everyday normal gas station. And we went over there and we got more shots and we were drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And my house was like a mile away. And I We drove home and we made it to the entrance of my subdivision and decided we were having such a good time listening to tunes that we were going to take the long way home. And we drove even further. And my wheel caught a part of the road that was disintegrating and I overcorrected and I was in the other lane and so I overcorrected that. And we ended up flipping my Fiat 500 three times and embedded ourselves upside down. I embedded myself upside down into an embankment and we were trapped inside my car. It gives me chills. I don't want my reluctancy to talk about this to be taken as something I'm not remorseful for. But you have to understand that I'm two and a half years sober and through all the legalities and all the hard work I put into myself, I had to turn the shame of this disgusting decision that I made into regret because I made a promise that I would never do this again and if I am shameful I'm being secretive and I want to be open about this and the decision that I made because I'm not proud of it and I want it to be regret so that I can learn and grow from that and that is where my episode shame and regret came from because to live in that shameful place of this disgusting decision that I made and to talk about it puts me back in that headspace as it should But I have done a lot of hard work and I want to continue to change my behavior and be the best version of myself that I can be for me and for other people. And I know that the decision that I made did not just affect me. It I'm I'm put I was putting other people's lives at risks at risk, but I I want to convey to you that it was not a thought in my mind. I drove all the time, so it never occurred to me that I shouldn't be driving. I was so sick and so, my brain was so soaked in alcohol. Like, it wasn't even, at the time it wasn't a choice that I was recognizing that I was making okay I recognize that now that I'm healthy and I'm no longer sick but I didn't at the time and I I I am so so sorry and I have talked about this before and I have made videos expressing this because I want to be honest about every single part of my recovery and that came with a breathalyzer and with a breathalyzer comes with a DWI and with a DWI comes the decision and the action to drive behind the wheel under the influence. And so I have to talk about it. I just don't want... I have everything negative that could or can or will be said to me has been said on the internet to me already. I can assure you of that. Um, But it also has been said to me by myself. 
And I had to learn and grow and realize that me doing that was not helping me change my behavior to be a better version of myself. So I don't really know another way to discuss this or bring this up, but that's the truth and it's what happened. And I received, uh, uh, there was no property damage, no other people were involved, neither me nor the passenger, my friend at the time, were injured in any way, shape, or form. I don't know how and I don't know why, but it clicked. It clicked when I realized, when I reached for the dome light so that I could see, and I'm sorry, I, I'm not getting emotional because I want you to pity me. I'm getting emotional because this was the most monumental, pivotal moment in my life and also the most disgusting, heinous decision I've ever made and at the same time changed my life forever. When I reached for the dome light because we couldn't see anything and realized none of my limbs were broken before I tried to crawl out of the vehicle and I was feeling this hot, sticky liquid that I couldn't tell what it was, I didn't know if I was in pain or shock. I just remember bracing myself twice because I thought she was going to fall on me and I, I, I realized we were upside down and I was sitting on the windshield. And I was like, we've got to get out of this vehicle. It's going to catch fire. And I was trying to open all of the doors and none of them were opening because they were so stuck in the ground. We were so embedded in the ground that there was no leeway for the doors to open. And it was just a few minutes and the firefighters came and let us out and I, and I was booked. Um, you know, they took me back to the police station. They took my fingerprints and then the legalities came. And I told myself... Um, that night, Jordan and I actually broke up. Um, and I think that that was really good for us because I think it was the best for me to get sober for myself and not for someone else. Um, to just do it alone and go through it alone was empowering, but it also allowed me to never have any resentments because I knew it was just my decision and my decision alone um, because I didn't have him to think about anymore. Um, we broke up, obviously, because he was like, you you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, was very much his attitude about it. And I don't blame him for that. Um, but I, in that moment, couldn't handle that. So we broke up. Um, then all of the legalities followed. So essentially, I went to the doctor. Everything was fine. Everything checked out normal. I decided I was going to quit. I went home. Three days later, I didn't realize it, but I was going through extreme withdrawal. I was having shakes. I couldn't sleep. Um, or maybe I could sleep and I was sleeping too much. I don't know. I might have been taking a sleep aid to help me sleep. Um, but my mom called me and she was like, you're not making complete sentences. And I was like, what are you talking about? But I, I apparently I wasn't making complete sentences and she was concerned about me. So she took me back to the hospital because she thought and I thought that everything I was experiencing was a direct result of the wreck. Because again, no one in my life knew exactly how much I was actually consuming except that friend. And the only reason she knew how much I was consuming is because she was consuming more than me. And so I wasn't as embarrassed for her to know the honest truth of how much alcohol I was actually intaking so she takes me back to the doctor and she's like when's the last time you ate and I was like it had to have been my rec was on April 1st and I was like it had to have been sometime like April 1st it was April 4th and she was like you have to eat and I was like I am just so sick like I don't know how to explain it to you I feel like I'm dying and she actually ended up buying me one shot and immediately 
it was like it was like I could see clearer and I was like I can eat I'm so hungry food sounds so good and it hadn't sounded good to me in days um and that's when we had the realization I was going through withdrawal was on the way to the hospital when I got something to eat so we did that and when I got to the hospital they were like yeah you have a severe concussion we didn't see it the first time but you do have a concussion so that might be um what's going on. But I also let them know that I had been withdrawing from alcohol, that I was an alcoholic and that I might need help. And they asked me how much I was drinking for how long and how much a day and for how long I hadn't drank. And they prescribed me a medical taper. I don't remember what the medication was, but I never talk about it online because I think that everyone is different and you should go seek medical attention and medical help. And me providing you with the name of a medication that helped me at a specific certain point in my life under certain situational circumstances isn't necessarily going to help you. I digress. They prescribed me the taper and I was still really shaky and really sleepy, yet I couldn't sleep for days. And on that third day, I decided to make a TikTok video seeking comfort, seeking companionship, seeking someone to talk to about it, someone to hear me, to feel heard, to to relate to someone. And it just blew up from there. I have such an amazing community. Some people have AA and NA and Celebrate Recovery and Smart Recovery, or they went to a rehab and they found resources and friends there or a therapist or inpatient or outpatient. But I, that wasn't the way that it, that just wasn't the way that it happened for me in my life. And that's okay. Uh, it happened a different way. So yeah, I mean, that's my alcoholism story. I don't know. This got deep and dark and sad. It gets sad, but I feel the need to tell you guys. My nose is like leaking <laughs> from crying. Um, I just feel the need to share this with you guys. I hope that you can understand maybe someone that you love better that a lot of times um, when we're making choices as an alcoholic, we don't realize we're making those choices. Um, it Sometimes it goes on for so, so long that we feel that there is no way to actually fix or help our... Sometimes we just... I, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is, like, the best way to be there for someone who is an addict is to be educated and instead of, like, being confrontational is to be kind and educated. So go to them and be like, I think you need help. I care about you. I love you. Here are the resources I found. Here are the different paths we can take. Here's the ways that I can help you. Here's here's the other people that I know that could help you get to where we need you to be and want you to be to live a better life. And um, using a lot of I statements is very important. And they might react negatively at first um, and push back a little bit, but to just get those gears turning. That's why I'm constantly making sobriety videos and talking about alcoholism on TikTok and the internet now and my shorts and my reels and everywhere is because I didn't have that and I wasn't seeing any of that content and if I did I might have thought about it more I might have thought about it more often I might have been um pushed or urged or you know pointed in the direction of of really second guessing what I was doing and where my life was going and I ultimately was not proud of myself and my decision to get sober was based on learning learning that I didn't love myself because what I was doing by abusing alcohol was a direct reflection of self-neglect in so many more ways than one. I'm talking like self, self-care, self mental care, like normal hygienic care, physical care for my teeth, for my endometriosis, for my panic disorder, for knowing I needed to go to a therapist and not going to one, for not brushing my teeth. Like 
there were things that were wrong with me that I was not fixing or addressing. And I knew that that meant that I didn't love myself. And that was a really, really hard thing to acknowledge. And I had to then move from acknowledgement to acceptance. And then I had to put in the work to learn how to love myself. And that is the premise of sounds like a you problem because a lot of things in my life I didn't want to be the victim of and I didn't want to victimize myself because I see my father do that and I see in his future that he will never get better, that he will live his entire life as an addict because he will always be the victim of something. It will always be a him problem. And I, I don't want that to be my life and I want to help others, even if they don't struggle from addiction, to be the best version of themselves and not victimize themselves, but rather take it as a lesson and a learning experience and move on from there. So thank you for listening to this episode. I know it was a really long one and I know that it maybe wasn't the most entertaining and you might have different feelings about me now that I've shared some of the decisions and choices that I made when I was an addict, but I hope that you can understand that I believe that the best apology is changed behavior and I'm not only changing my behavior for myself, but for those around me and anyone, any stranger that interacts with me at any point. Um, We are all human and we all do make mistakes and choices and decisions and I'm choosing to put the worst one I've ever made on the internet. So I hope that you can understand where I'm coming from by doing that Um, because this is not something that I have to share. Um, This is not something I have to put out there to be judged for. Um, But I'm not so worried about the judgment as I am just the story maybe resonating with someone and changing their life. That's what I'm hoping to do with this whole podcast. Um, It just weighs so heavy on my heart that it feels purposeful because the night of the wreck, I took a photo of the car as I was leaving in the police vehicle and posted it on Facebook and said, why can't I just die already? And I had so many people comment and message me that I didn't realize were in my corner. And I think a lot of times when you are an individual who grows up, a child who grows up without having anyone in your corner, you often think that that's how it will always be. Or sometimes as a mechanism to protect yourself, you will tell yourself that you have no one because you don't want to get hurt or disappointed by those someones. And the recognition that people loved me and cared about my life more than I did touched my soul and it changed me. And I'm very excited to share my sobriety story with you guys. Um, As far as the legalities went, um, jail was on the table, community service, I hired a lawyer, I had a breathalyzer, I'm still on probation. I've paid all my probation fees. I've went on time for two, almost for, for almost two years. Um, I did SATOP driving classes, paid all those fines. Um, it was about a $25,000 ticket altogether wrapped in. So if there's, if I can at least financially um, make you change your choice about maybe driving home after two beers, just know that it, it, it can financially set you back and change the trajectory of your life forever. Um, even if you don't struggle from alcohol abuse, there are so many people on the road who are under the influence, whether they are an alcoholic or not. And I, yeah, 
I don't know. I ended up getting my breathalyzer removed early for good behavior, and I cried. Um, I ended up being able to go on low supervision probation because I have paid all my fines and I've showed up every single time and I've put the work in. I worked multiple, I've worked multiple jobs for two years um, to be able to get out of this financial burden, at least for the time being. Like, I do have debt from it, but I am as far out as one can be. Um, I've worked as much as humanly possible, but I just still want to share my story and yeah, I, I don't know. If you like me telling a little bit more about my life and you want to hear more raw, like real vulnerable things, um, let me know that you like it by giving this a five-star rating on Spotify or a comment on um, YouTube if you relate or you think that it changed your perspective in any way because I want to make sure that I'm conveying this in a way that is motivational and conducive to the message that overall conducive to the message I'm trying to share here through sounds like a you problem. I love you guys all so much for listening to me. Um, I hope that you can understand where I'm at now and I will see you guys all in the next episode of sounds like a you problem.